0: All right, well, good morning, church family. It's a joy to be with you today. Uh, good morning to those joining us online as well. Um, you know, I, it's, I hate to be weather functional, but it is really nice, isn't it? The sun comes out and things change. Um, and that's, uh, it's just, let's acknowledge the joy of it and then piggyback that into the joy of the Lord. Let's give him thanks uh, for sunlight and brightness and these things. We should also give him thanks for rain, which is maybe a good segue into talking about the judgment of God today. Um, let's begin right away with our scripture reading, which is in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 46. I'm going to read verses 25 through 28. This is Jeremiah 46, near the end of the book, verses 25 through 28. Uh, The words are on the screen, and I'm going to read from my Bible here. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, Behold, I am going to punish Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh. And Egypt, along with her gods and her kings, even Pharaoh and those who trust in him, I shall give them over to the power of those who are seeking their lives, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his officers. Afterwards, however, it will be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. But as for you, O Jacob, my servant, do not fear nor be dismayed, O Israel. For see, I am going to save you from afar and your descendants from the land of their captivity. And Jacob will return and be undisturbed and secure with no one making him tremble. O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, declares the Lord, for I am with you, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven you. Yet I will not make a full end of you, but I will correct you properly and by no means leave you unpunished. This is the word of the Lord today. Now, um, this is about the judgment of God, and you don't have to read very long in the Old Testament before you encounter God's judgment. It's right there on the surface. In fact, in the book of Jeremiah alone, I did some word searches. Uh, The word woe comes up 14 times. Woe to you, woe to you, woe to so forth and so on. We don't say woe very often these days, but it's there. Uh, The word judgment or judge shows up about eight times in the book of Jeremiah. The word Calamity comes up a whopping 27 times, a calamity that's going to come. And the word punish or punishment shows up 34 times in the book of Jeremiah. That's more than Isaiah and Ezekiel combined and is 40% or so of the entire prophetic books of the Bible. So much punishment in the book of Jeremiah. And a severe judgment is a consistent part of our biblical witness. Now, last week I talked about yokes we'd like to break if we could. You know? If we didn't know the Word of God, we'd like to break the yoke of God's Word, and we don't have to deal with some of these difficult things. And these are real difficulties in our Bibles. They're spiky bits. They're uncomfortable, right? They're bits of like cactus groves throughout our Bible, and we have to walk carefully or we're going to get uh, pricked by these things. And I think the judgment of God is one of these yokes that many of us would like to do away with. We'd like to break and pass it aside. And yet, the judgment of God and the idea of God as judge and of even an imminent calamity is an integral part of our Old Testaments and actually part of our New Testaments as well. And I want to invite you today to look with me at this unavoidable aspect of our Christian witness. It's not avoidable, but let's look at it together. So let's talk about what God's judgment is. Let's talk about what the judgment of God is. Uh, Each of us has ideas in our heads already about judgment, don't we? We've already got some pre-formed ideas. Maybe some of you have an idea of a judge on an elevated platform wearing a conspicuous wig, right? It's the first image that comes to mind. When you think of God as judge, you're picturing God, what, how big must the wig be, right? I mean, it's a massive wig in this case. You've got sermons and bits of sermons you've heard in your lives about the judgment of God being tied to various natural calamities. Something bad happens, and the preacher is eager to say, it's the judgment of God upon whoever, whatever the place may be. You can announce these things. And then, in, especially in the last 20 years or so, you've been told an awful lot about not judge, judging people and about not being judgmental. Something you were told to do again and again, which primes us to be a bit confused where we're confronted with a God who judges absolutely everyone and judges all the time. So, there's some challenges here in terms of us approaching these things. Well, let's begin with clarifying what we're talking about with the judgment of God, what's going on. And I think um, we can divide this into some categories. In the first place, we can talk about part of it that's really good news. Part of the judgment of God is really, really good news for us. And part of the judgment of God is also really tough news, hard to hear. Uh, so let's take each of these parts in turn. Let's begin with the good news. And the place to start is to step back into the culture of the ancient Near Eastern world. And let's look for a minute at the book of Judges. Now, Judges is very early in Israel's history. They've entered the land. They've taken possession. Uh, Moses and Joshua have both kicked it. And now there's a new kind of leadership structure showing up in Israel. They're without a king. And we read the following words at Judges chapter 2, verse 16. It says, Then the Lord raised up Judges who delivered them, the Israelites, from the hands of those who plundered them. In other words, the way that God's people are led in this kind of interregnum period is by men and women raised up in authority to be judges in Israel. And this gets us to the very first thing that it is about, a good thing about judgment, that a judge is a ruler. A judge is a ruler, someone in charge, okay? In ancient Israel, the judge is appointed to rule for a time, and if ruler, a judge is a ruler, then if God is the judge, then that's the first bit of good news for us, is that the judgment of God points to God as the ruler of all. He's the one who's in charge. Why is this good news? Maybe this should be obvious, but I'll spill it out for you anyways. Uh, all human rulers are flawed. I mean, you know this. You have your favorite politicians, but you know that they're all flawed. There's all something wrong. Uh, all human governments are corrupt. There's no human government that's got it all together. There's corruption everywhere. There are humans involved in it. And when we speak of God as our ruler, as our king, and indeed as our judge, we're saying there is someone perfectly holy, perfectly good, perfectly powerful who is at the helm of the universe. Helps us to relax a little bit, knowing that there's someone so good in charge. And no matter how chaotic things get in human leadership and human governance, we've got access to the ruler who sits above it all in goodness. I think that's good news. So God is a ruler. God is a judge. Now, second thing we learn about judges in the ancient Near Eastern context of the Old Testament is about the, this. Excuse me, is that a judge is someone who navigates disputes? So someone who's a ruler, but also someone who navigates disputes between people. This comes explicitly from the life. Of Moses. Let's look at Moses's life for a minute. Uh, this is Exodus chapter 18 verses 13 through 16. So he's leading the Israelites uh, and he's getting into some trouble. It came about the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. Okay. He's making judgments. And the people stood about Moses from the morning until evening. Now, when Moses's father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he, the father-in-law said, what is this thing that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as judge, and all the people stand about you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor, and make known the statutes of God and his laws. So here we have another kind of judgment, that the the judgment is judging dispute between a man and his neighbor, making known the statutes of God and his laws. This is one of Moses' key jobs. He offers judgment to people who aren't clear about what they're supposed to do. He adjudicates disputes. He navigates between difficulties. He's the chief interpreter of the law, and he offers real-time counsel to people who don't know how they're supposed to behave. That's part of this job. Ah, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, he observes the situation and goes on to give some critical advice. This is one of the, I mean, I don't know how many of you are wonderfully receptive to the information from your fathers-in-law, but this is a great moment of how Moses receives insight from his father-in-law. Let me read the rest of the passage, verses 17 to 23. Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now, listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place these over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times. And let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, but every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace. This wonderful advice and delegation, isn't it? Moses, you're doing it all yourself, so share the judging load. So now, instead of the judge being just a ruler, one guy in charge, now judging is shared with the people who also have to participate in the judging activity of one another. And so judging is something that people do in in working out what these disputes happen. This is a kind of uh, judgment as a court of appeal. Let's figure out the truth together. Now, I think this is also really good news for us because it means that the judgment of God points to God as our judge and he is our chief adjudicator between human disputes. When we can't figure things out, we can always go to him as a final kind of answer, the final response. And this becomes clear once again when we realize um, that we make all sorts of mistakes, don't we? We make misjudgments all the time. And in fact, we've witnessed massive and vast miscarriages of justice in our lives, haven't we? where people do wrong things with disputes. Just this past week, Carolyn Brandt has died. Uh, She's the woman who falsely accused Emmett Till in 1955. Emmett Till was abducted, tortured, murdered in the American South, and she got to live a full life and die essentially of old age. Well, he dies as a 14-year-old boy. Is that fair? Is that just? On human terms, no way. But we have confidence that the one who makes these judgments is not deceived. That there is ultimate justice where I don't know what that justice is. I'm not telling you what it is. But we have confidence to know that we are not crippled by acts of injustice in our world because we know there is a judge who is fair outside our world. It transforms how we can deal with some of these things. God doesn't make mistakes. He judges fairly, rightly, and perfectly. God always gets it right. Some of this confusion shows up in a passage like 1 Timothy 5, 24. Paul writes these words to his disciple. The sins of some men are quite evident going before them to judgment. For other, their sins follow after. Sometimes I might want to put this on a magnet for my fridge. The sum, sins of some men are evident going before them. The Some of them, they follow after. Some people, you know there's trouble because there's just stuff ahead of them. And some people, there's trouble in the wake of every place they've been it's hard to know sometimes what it is. And some, you know what? People are sometimes really clever at deceiving you. Sometimes they're very clever at deceiving you. And sometimes, you know what? I think we are eager to be deceived. We want to believe in people as well. We're really bad at making judgments. And the good news is we serve a God who makes perfect judgments in these ways. And in God's court, everything will be perfectly clear. Um, Another maybe slightly grim story, just this past week, I read about a a kind of semi-famous unsolved murder, maybe you saw this on the news, in 1990, a woman answers the door, her kids are eating breakfast, and she's murdered by someone dressed as a clown, and they never found the murderer, and I thought, this is crazy, this is like television murder mystery stuff, right? And just this past week, they've arrested someone finally in this case, and it turns out that this is the woman who married the widow, okay, so like massive crazy triangle of like she married the husband of the woman that she killed and all sorts of crazy stuff. So for 30 years she lives her life. Do you think she thought she was going to get away with it? You think she thought she was going to make it? Do you think she pulled the wool over the eyes of the Almighty? The point is it doesn't matter what happens in the earthly court. The point is there are no murder mysteries in heaven, which is a little disappointing because I rather like the genre when I got to watch it myself, and I was thinking about the fact that there probably won't be murder mysteries, because if you're watching with God, he always knows the murderer right away. In fact, he knows the perpetrators of crimes better than the perpetrator knows him or herself. There are no mysteries in God's court. There are no mysteries in God's justice, because God is a perfect adjudicator of righteousness. We make lots of mistakes, and our judgments are often wrong, and things are grim for us, and we have to live in the difficulty of misjudgments missed, missed and mistaken judgments, but we know that we serve a God who does not make mistakes, and this is one way that God's judgment is really good news for us. No mistakes. No miscarriages of justice. Nothing will be wrong. It's really good. So I think maybe we're a lot clearer with these ideas in place about what it means to to think about God's judgment. He's our ruler, our authority, our king, and he adjudicates the disputes between his people. His court is perfect. And so God, as judge, to summarize, God is a perfect ruler and perfect adjudicator. And this means that the judgment of God is good news for us. It also maybe answers, for some of you who hear the words um, that we want to be on the right side of history... And this is quite a strong argument for many people, and they feel a sense of anxiety about where they stand on things. There's only one right side of history, and that's God's side. Now, the danger is when we think we know exactly what God's side is now, (laughs) which we don't always, right? Sometimes we still get it wrong. But with what we know and with the responsibility we have, have we been faithful enough to try and stand in line with who God is? Sometimes that's the best we can do in the confusion of this world. All right, this for me captures the main ideas for how God's judgment is good news. God is the just judge. He's the ruler of all. Uh, But let's talk about how this judgment is also tough news for us. And I think there's a couple ways it's tough. Uh, The first is this. The judgment of God is God's verdict on the world. The judgment of God is God's verdict on the world. God is our perfect and sovereign and knowledgeable judge, and he's passed a judgment on humanity, and that judgment we see in a passage like Romans 6, 23a, for the wages of sin is death. Yeah. This is the judgment of God upon humanity. You know, it's one thing to view miscarriages of justice from a distance. You know who else died this past week was Jerry Springer, Right? The Jerry Springer Show, you know what was fun about the Jerry Springer Show? Not being on it. (laughs) You could watch the mess that was other people's lives. And you could take pleasure in the fact that you had some moral high ground, right? How joyful not to be on the show, right? Or called and have. And now we reveal, ah, who knows what's coming out from behind the curtain. It's one thing to view miscarriages of justice from a distance it's another thing to be hungry for another ju- another excuse me hungry for our own justice it's quite different to realize that God's judgment falls upon all of us equally See we each of us have sinned before God We've fallen short of our created intention You've not made it You've actually rebelled actively against God and rejected his ways of doing things in favor of your own And God, from his perspective as ultimate king and perfect knowledge, has judged us from that heavenly perspective, and the verdict we receive is guilty. For all have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. This brings us back to today's passage from Jeremiah. Let me read the first part of it for you now again. Jeremiah 46, 25, and 26. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says, Behold, I am going to punish, there's that word, Ammon of Thebes, Pharaoh and Egypt, along with her gods and her kings, even Pharaoh and those who trust in him. I shall give them over to the power of those who are seeking their lives, even to the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of his officers. Afterwards it will be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. Now, this section of Jeremiah, really many of the last chapters, is a series of um, judgments pronounced against all of Israel's neighbors. You just go around the map, but it's just judgments of all the neighbors, and this is the passage I just pulled out about Egypt in particular. Verdicts, God's verdicts against the nations. Now, if you're an embattled Israelite feeling a little oppressed by the people around you, and you read all these oracles of, of judgment, you might be like, yay, God's gonna get them, right? A little Jerry Springer, Schadenfreude, really happiness to watch other people receive their punishment in these places, And I think it's really easy to um, fall into that little trap where we feel good about the fact that we've got God on our side and they don't, right? And they're going to get punished and we're going to be okay. Um, And we don't have to be ancient Israelites to do this. We could be slightly embattled Christians and do this as well. Yay, God is going to make all the wrongs of the world right, especially the wrongs committed by, and you can fill in the blank, right? The nationalists, right? The Americans, right? The libs the gaze. Oh, you could fill in the blanks with whatever cause you think is the case and whatever gives you a way to point the finger at outsiders and avoid having to look at yourself. Because this is the second half of the passage, isn't it? Verse 27 and 8. As for you, O Jacob, my servant, do not fear nor be dismayed, O Israel, for see, I am going to save you from afar. Good news, i going to save you. And your descendants from the land of their captivity, and Jacob will return and be undisturbed and secure with no one making him trouble. Oh, that's wonderful news. And, O Jacob, my servant, do not fear, declares the Lord, for I am with you, for I will make a full end of all the nations where I have driven you, yet I will not make a full end of you. And then it twists, but I will correct you properly and by no means leave you unpunished. You get it too. Judgment of God doesn't just fall on our enemies. It falls on us. And we have to recognize this. Just when we might be tempted to feel triumphant about God's justice poured out on our enemies, God says, I will by no means leave you unpunished. And judgment falls upon the house of God as well. We don't get to feel safe. We don't get to feel self-satisfied that everybody else is going to get it. In fact, it is quite clear in the Scriptures that judgment, God's verdict, impacts absolutely everyone. Let me pull two passages for you briefly. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10. Paul's speaking about Jesus in this passage. He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive recompense for what we've done, whether good or bad. Every single one of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, let me just take a brief aside here and say one thing. Paul has a very strong idea of the judgment of God, of God as ruler and ultimate king. And when he says that the judgment seat is of Christ, Christ is sitting in the place where God, the King of Israel, sits. And subtly, he is saying also that Jesus is God. It's a little uh, subtle placement. The only person who sits in that chair is the Almighty, and Jesus is sitting in that chair. It's interesting. But what's this judgment seat? It's this raised platform where someone sits to pass judgment on people who come before him in this place. And in Paul's thinking, this justice impacts everyone. Every single one of us will give an account before Jesus. Not just me, not just bad guys, every one of us. Every one of us stands before the throne. Every one of us gives an accounting for our deeds. And I hope you can see why this aspect of the judgment of God is tough news. It's tough. We can't paste over it. We have to look at the sticky bits to come face to face with the cactus. Another passage may soften this, not soften, soften's the wrong word, uh, may contextualize, give some flavor to this. And it's very familiar. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Here we are at the near the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what Jesus says. it's fall, and just now I moved my hands back and forth. I remembered the children's song, right? And the rains fell down, and the floods came up. Nobody's nodding. A few of you, okay? Good. I'm not alone. Okay. Two houses, right? One on rock, one on sand. Obviously, one has a good foundation, one has a bad foundation. This much is right clear. But at the end of the parable, it's really important to note that the storm hits both houses. It's not that the weak house got judged by the storm and the strong house got a sunny day pass. No, there, no bad things will happen to you because you built your foundation on the life of Jesus. That's not what Jesus says at all. He says the storm is coming, everything will be tested, judgment will hit everyone. And when judgment hits, guess what's revealed? What did you build on? What's your foundation? And so we see this as fairly clear throughout this. If your foundation is Christ, you're going to make it. If your foundation is something else, you're not going to make it. Now this leads to the next thing I want to say this morning about God's judgment and why it's tough news. Here's the second thing. The judgment of God is revealed in calamity. The judgment of God is revealed in calamity. Now, I want to use some careful language here because we have to have careful thinking about this. We can go wrong here. Um, And if you're confused at the end of it, come talk to me, and we'll talk some more about it, because I don't want you to be confused. As we've seen with the story of the two foundations, you know what? Calamity of some form is inevitable. Something bad is going to happen. Things will go wrong. Some of you have experienced this firsthand. You've experienced calamity in your life firsthand, and your foundations have been rattled. Some of you have been spared. You've not experienced these things firsthand firsthand. But whether you've been touched by calamity or spared, one calamity is certain for all of us, and that's death. Every single one of us is going to die. And at this point, all of you know somebody, I hope, no, I don't hope, all of you know somebody who has passed away. You've experienced this to some degree. And I think we have to see that death is always a form of God's judgment. A form, it's the calamity that's always a part of God's judgment. It's the original punishment for Adam and Eve. Eat from the fruit, you will surely die. They don't die on the spot, but they lose life. And they're kicked out of something glorious. The wages of sin, according to Romans 6.23. And ultimately, what we have to see, what all calamity does, and death in particular, is that it reveals the weakness of our human flesh. And the weakness of our power. And the weakness of our efforts. And the weakness of our capacities to make things right. Calamity is exposing the foundations on which we build. And if we build on ourselves, it's always weak. Like I said, some of you have tasted this already. And if I were to share the microphone this morning, I could call on people to come and say, tell me how calamity showed you that your foundations were destroyed. And you'd say, yeah, I've done this. And others of you would be able to say, I haven't had this happen yet. And we could, we could pray for that to continue for you. But we've got some bad habits. Um... And I don't need to address where we picked up the bad habits. It comes often from the church and from things we read. Uh, calamity comes to someone we know, and the easiest thing to say, whether we say it out loud or in our hearts, is, well, you know, it's God's judgment, right? Uh, someone has lived a morally spurious life, and then they get a cancer diagnosis, and it's the easiest thing to say, right, is, well, you know, it's God's judgment, right? Right? Uh, Or someone, we could go on and invent, invent these things. You know what? It is never our place to explain the suffering of others by means of our perception of their sin. I'll say that again. It is never, ever our place to explain the suffering of other people by means of how we perceive their sin. That's not our job. I think this is actually what the heart of it means when Jesus says, do not judge. It means don't sit in God's chair. Only God makes that judgment, not you. You don't get to draw a line from someone's moral life to their experience of suffering and explain A by means of B. It's off the limits. Okay? And here's the reason: you don't have the knowledge. You don't know enough. You don't have the wisdom. If you had the knowledge, you wouldn't understand the human heart well enough. And on top of it all, you don't have the authority. It's not your place. I think that's the heart of what Jesus means by this. So tough news, isn't it? God's judgment falls on all people. No one is exempt. And our experiences of pain and tragedy are, in a very specific way, I've spoken about just now, the exposure of our foundations. When we experience pain and tragedy, it's revealing our foundations. But we can't draw moral lines from that. We can't interpret the events that way. Let's come back to Jeremiah. He announces God's judgment against the nations and against God's people. He announces it in advance. I'm going to do these things. Why does God do this? Why does God reveal his verdicts in advance? Why does God announce his calamities in advance? What's he doing? Well, the answer is this. God reveals his judgment through his prophets so that we have an opportunity to change. He reveals these judgments in advance. He tells us about his verdicts so we will have an opportunity to change. Um, I'll I'll just point you to several weeks ago, months ago now, we preached a sermon on Jeremiah chapter 18. We talked about the potter and the clay and the purpose of prophecy. This potter is sitting here and he wants the clay to respond to the master. I'm telling you what I'm doing and we want to be soft clay before the Lord. Soft clay to receive the word of the Lord and change in accordance with his plan. He's telling you what's gonna happen if you don't change. You all have an opportunity to change. And that's why God announces these things to us. All right, how do we respond to this judgment? What do we do with this knowledge? It's such a big part of our Old Testament. So it's, such, it's present there. Uh, it's present in the New Testament as well. And I think the main answer is that we have to respond with mercy. We have to respond with mercy. I don't want to talk about this for just a moment. It is easy for us to become fearful embattled, feel like the world is against us, like we're alone and tired and and embattled by powers and forces that want to undo the work of God in the world. It's easy to feel that way. It's very easy to take comfort in the judgment of God against other people. He's going to come and straighten out our enemies, right? You may win today, but one day you'll have to stand before the throne of God, and then I'll be like, nah, 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 nah. We don't, you know, we could create a feeling of pleasure at other people's misfortune but we cannot allow a kind of us them divide to make us feel better at the expense of them because you know who they are they're people that christ died for and wants to have a relationship with him they're people who are maybe not yet in the family of god but god really wants them in his family So will you take pleasure at judging them when God himself wants to save them if he can? This is why mercy is so important, isn't it? We have to lead with mercy. We cannot lead with judgment. So let me talk about some things that we can do, four brief things we can do. Number one thing we can do is we can exalt God as the perfect judge. Exalt God as the perfect judge. Remember, his justice is the heart of all justice. His rulership is the heart of all rulership. And we can focus on his holiness and his power and his goodness. And you know what we can also do? We can throw every injustice his way. It says in Romans, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. Right? Someone stub your toe. Someone sideswipe your car. Someone seed your lawn with, I don't know they, you know, they throw, some of you are really lawn precious, I don't know what they seed your lawn with. Someone throws crabgrass all over your lawn, right? Vengeance is mine, throw your injustices to him. Appeal every injustice to his court. Take no vengeance for yourself, Jesus says, okay? Exalt God as the perfect judge. Second thing, don't stand in God's place. This is what I think Jesus means when he says don't judge, don't stand in God's place. Only let God stand in God's place. It's very important. Um, Number three, when you must make judgments, do it with reverence for the judge. Judge with reverence for the judge and according to Jesus's instruction. Uh, I'm not going to go into this wholesomely right now because it's a whole other sermon, but in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus says the words, do not judge, and then he goes on to give advice on how to judge. Um, you should look at that and realize this is interesting. You remember some of the pieces he tells you? He says, uh, why are you worried about the speck in your brother's eye? when you have got a log in your own eye? And he doesn't say, so shut up. He says, deal with the log, and then you can help with the speck. So, what's the first part of judgment? Look in the mirror, man, (laughs) right? Or woman, or whoever you are. (laughs) Look, Look at yourself first. Take stock of that, right? He says, then, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If you're the standard of judgment, you're stuffed. So who's the measure we get to use? Well, Jesus is the perfect standard. And now, instead of me coming down in judgment on you, guess where we are? We're side by side under the authority of Jesus, saying, I don't have this together either. Can we work on Jesus is, you know, we're both under judgment for a lot of things. Can we figure this out together? You see how this gives you some perspectives, teaching you how to judge instead of telling you not to do it, just giving you the mode. And then he talks about don't throw your pearls before swine. It doesn't mean you can say, you pig, and run away from people, right? It means you have to make sense of the fact that, you know, some people will never be able to receive the words you have and never be able to receive uh, the good stuff that you have to share. And sometimes you have to make a decision not to speak. Don't waste your breath. But be very careful about that, right? Because then, if you create an asana, all sorts of things can go wrong. Don't pretend to be God. Okay? So, judge with reverence for the judge. And, fourth and finally, knowing that the verdict falls upon all of humanity, lead with mercy. Although we are a people deserving judgment, we've been saved by the work of Christ. We 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 will receive judgment, we will answer for the things we've done, but we know the judge. And he's promised to save us. The verdict of calamity of God's justice are revealed most powerfully in the cross of Christ. The verdict was death. The calamity was the death of Christ. And now Christ in that death offers salvation to us. And then we get some more scripture. You've been forgiven a lot, so forgive. God has given you abundantly. Don't be cheap with each other. Right? He's shown you mercy, now be merciful to one another. Mercy is the disposition that we lead by. But the funny thing is is that we don't forgive and love and show mercy apart from the judgment of God. It's not that we can separate the two and say, oh, now we know mercy and justice. Now we know mercy and justice is a sign. It's that our sense of forgiveness and mercy comes directly out of this knowledge of God's justice. He is the ruler, he's perfect in his justice. He's revealed his verdict against humanity, we're guilty. And he's promised to reveal our foundations through calamity, but when we know Christ, we have a way through. I'd like to invite our musicians to come and take their place as we get ready for some closing worship this morning. We've got a couple songs at this time. We get a chance to sing, to throw ourselves on the Almighty, to focus on his goodness, his power, and his justice especially. We've got people available for prayer this morning. We've got Brenda and Michael, where are you all? I saw you, I saw you just a minute. They're gonna be over here in the alcove ready to pray with you for anything. Um, do you have an enemy who needs justice? Go get prayer. you might get prayed for yourself, but that's all right. Um, do you have a need? Do you wanna hear from the Lord this morning? Go and receive prayer for these things. Uh, now may I ask you to stand as we worship our just king together.